Hello and welcome to Science Off Camera. I'm Dr. Matthew Kozedun from Teledyne Photometrics, part of the Teledyne Imaging Group. In this podcast, I will be speaking with imaging specialists and industry leaders in scientific imaging from around the world about what they do, the advances they have made, and the cool imaging setups they have in their labs. Before we get started, if you're interested in learning more about scientific cameras and comparing technologies, we're currently holding live interactive remote learning sessions at our demo centers around the globe. Book a personalized session with one of our application specialists today on our website, photometrics.com. We also have an exciting new product launching soon, the Kinetics SCMOS, which delivers a frame rate and field of view unmatched by any other SCMOS camera. Book an online demonstration to see how it compares to current camera technologies. Welcome to Science Off Camera. Uh, could you introduce yourself and tell me about your career path? So what kind of, where are you at now and what kind of path did you take to your current position in terms of your career? Yeah, so yeah, I'm presently the uh, Chief Technology Officer for um, Teledyne uh, Princeton Instruments. But I look after both the, uh, the R&D activities for the Teledyne Princeton Instruments and Teledyne Photometrics uh, scientific imaging uh, units within Teledyne. And yeah, I started with uh, what was Princeton Instruments uh, slash Acton Research back in 2008 as a senior scientist and you know, really the, the interest I think in then was relative to a lot of the spectroscopy work that I had done my PhD thesis on. And so that was um, studying materials at extreme uh, pressure, a diamond anvil cell group. And for those of you that don't know what a diamond anvil cell is, um, it's actually this very primitive tool that allows you to generate extremely high pressure between uh, the culets, the points of a diamond. And so you take two diamonds, their culets, the points are facing one another, and you affix one to a, a piston, and the other is affixed to a cylinder with special mounting hardware, and then these are brought together uh, with typically a hardened uh, piece of metal, either hardened steel or hardened rhenium. And you drill inside that a really tiny microscopic hole, and there you put a nanoliter or so of material, and you can compress it and actually bring that up to, you know, even beyond center of the earth pressure. And you know, we take things a step further, and we... We take a, a very powerful uh, CO2 laser, or at least it was a CO2 laser at the time. Now it would probably be a fiber amplifier, <laughs> um, but okay. And then you can bring the temperature now up to several thousand Kelvin and the pressure up to, um, when we say high pressure, it's in the gigapascal to, uh, to 100 gigapascal range. So the center of the earth is probably, I think, around 300 gigapascal. Or maybe that's the uh, uh, the core mantle barrier. It's around that pressure, and so it allows you to create, you know, in your laboratory in a very small environment, pressure and temperatures that are very similar to the center of the Earth. And where the spectroscopy piece comes into play is when you want to interrogate the material to figure out what it is that you actually have created, because you go through quite a few solid-solid phase transitions um, at those pressures. <clears throat> and so, really, to study the uh, 
you know, the, you know, interior earth dynamics, it, you know, you really have to understand the material properties at those conditions. And so I had developed a lot of Raman spectroscopy instrumentation and a lot of other optical instrumentation to help study materials under those conditions. Also, a lot of um, X-ray diffraction work, uh, you know, to complement the Raman spectroscopy and solving structural uh, solutions of the materials. And so, you know, Princeton Instruments' interest in me kind of came from a lot of that work in developing the Raman spectroscopy equipment that was utilized in my research as it was, um, a lot of it was built around using PI hardware. <clears throat> And so then for me, the interest was quite natural. You know, I, I very much geeked out on the, on the science of, of what I just described, but also I was quite passionate about, you know, advancing the hardware as well that I was using in the lab. That's, that's really where I started. And I came in as a, as a senior scientist and immediately started, you know, developing, you know, novel extensions to the Cerny-Turner spectrograph that, that we've been using, you know, now for the Cerny-Turner dates back to maybe the 1900s, um, but the modern incarnation of it dates back to probably the 1980s, maybe late 80s, when the use of toroidal optics became more standard practice. And adding in a toroidal optic to the classic two-spherical mirror Cerny-Turner design really served to pull out um, what is called astigmatism, and it's an aberration in the in the geometry of the Turney-Turner spectrograph. It, it produces sort of this uh, elongation of what otherwise would would be a spot um, at the edges of the focal plane of a imaging spectrograph, and so that had kind of uh, plagued the Turney-Turner design for maybe thirty years or so. Um, you know, as I was advancing through, you know, my early years at, at Princeton, you know, one of the designs that kind of came to me <clears throat> by way of paying attention to what the astronomers had, had done for many years in terms of uh, their implementation of side elaboration theory, um, you know, they, they, they more or less solved this problem, you know, quite a long time ago. And it was, you know, merely just, you know, taking the play out of the astronomer's, you know, book in terms of how to design a telescope properly and, and comparing that to a spectrograph and realizing, okay, yeah, spectrograph is kind of, you know, just, you know, two telescopes with, you know, a common aperture and that's the diffraction grading. So we put this together in a novel uh, arrangement and then we have what we call the Schmidt-Zerny-Turner, which kind of borrows some of the, uh, uh, the theory from Bernard Schmidt. Um, and some of the, the telescope theory um, that I won't go, go into detail on. Uh, and then we have, you know, the, uh, the trade name of the system that we call the isoplane, and that's kind of where that, where that came from. And so that takes me, you know, to when I <clears throat> took the role as chief scientist at, at, at Princeton and, you know, moved on to the isoplane 81 design and, and other products alike. Um, I left the company uh, for a very short period of time to develop uh, quantum cascade laser-based IR uh, spectroscopy systems for a company called Block Engineering. Uh, that was kind of a very, a very interesting sabbatical, if you will. Um, so I had, you know, recalling back to you know where I began my work in spectroscopy and X-ray. Um, I had have kind of seen, you know, things from, you know, the X-ray side of the spectrum through the visible, but really had not done any work 
um, and, and large extent in the IR. Um, so the uh, you know the two years ish that I was at Block Engineering really kind of rounded that out, and you know was very uh, uh, very very cool I guess you could just say in the in the technology um, you know as the uh, quantum cascade laser uh, systems that we were developing were really aimed at replacing you know the classic Fourier transform IR spectrometers that you kind of see everywhere in the IR domain. And so this was more of a, you know, scanning a, uh, there were broadly tunable uh, IR lasers. And so instead of having a passive scanning system, it was more of an active uh, wavelength swept uh, spectroscopy modality. Um, and then in, I think it was 2018, I left block engineering and came back to, uh, you know, it was still, you know, Princeton Instruments as, as held by Roper uh, technologies and obviously the acquisition of the imaging companies of Modulo Gatan then went through um, then uh, 2019 in February of that year that I came back and so I came back as chief technology officer and now kind of have a, a, a more broader role at the company you know not only you know leading product development efforts but really having a you know uh, a look towards innovation and, and where we can where we can grow the company in that in that sense. Okay, so what was it that interested you about spectroscopy in the first place? Really, I, I think what interested me most was um, vibrational spectroscopy in the sense that you can um, take a a coherent source and and scatter that off of a crystal or a molecular species. And the way in which that light is scattered inelastically, uh, you can infer what the structure is. That fascinated me the most. And, you know, you can, you can compare it to, um, you know, strumming a chord on a guitar. You know, if you take a, a, an audio spectrum analyzer, and you you break apart the frequency components from a chord that you've strummed on the guitar, you'll see the individual frequency components, and then you could say, yeah, okay, that was a G chord. Um, well, kind of very analogously, you can shine monochromatic light on a sample, and it will reflect off inelastically, and you will see peaks that correspond to different molecular vibrations, just like the individual strings on a guitar vibrating. And you can take that representation and then map it back onto a crystal structure that must give you that. And that was what I think was most fascinating about vibrational spectroscopy is kind of how you can, you know, use that as a means to fingerprint a material. So we were using that in our lab to identify, you know, when you create a new material by compressing it, um, you have to have some way of inferring what, what the heck you made. <laughs> And so we we use that technique, and it's the theory behind it, and how you can how you can map out what the what the structure of the material is based on the vibrational spectra. I thought was probably the most fascinating. So, what sort of direction do you think spectroscopy technology is going to move into? What changes would you most like to see as we move forward into the future? Like, are there any limitations about the technology that you'd like to? address? Well, one thing I think is not 
often utilized enough, and that is <clears throat> orthogonal detection modalities. And, you know, a lot of companies don't build systems that, that can do that. And what I mean by that is, you know, Raman spectroscopy and IR spectroscopy literally complement one another. The selection rules are, are different. And so the, the, the vibrational modes that you will see from IR absorption are not exactly the same that you'll see from Raman spectroscopy. And so combining the two of those actually then provides um, a more complete representation of, of what, the, you know, what the material is. And so in terms of material identification, you know, again, I can make the example going back to my own work. You know, Raman spectroscopy is simply not enough. You know, you create a new material and you want to identify what it is. And if you, you, maybe you have an initial, an initial guess as to what it is. But the Raman uh, assignments alone aren't going to help. It will help, but they're not going to tell the whole story. You'll, you'll need more. And so in, in this case, it was, you know, X-ray diffraction work that had to be done, which is the orthogonal detection modality. And in that case, had to be considered simultaneously with the Raman spectra to really determine what the structure is. And so <clears throat> in the spectroscopy sense, you know, bringing IR into this alongside of Raman, I've always thought is, you know, a great next step and something that you really don't see so much of. Because you started out in science and moved towards industry, do you find that you're collaborating a lot with academia to develop these technologies? Or do you sort of use an internal perspective? Well, we like to collaborate as much as we possibly can with, you know, our academic partners and, and you know, a lot of this draws on the, on the customer relationships that we have and maintain. Um, because clearly, <clears throat> you know, the direction that, that they're taking things is, is incredibly important to us. And we need to make sure that the products we develop align with, with what it is that they're doing. Uh, though at the same time, you know, internally, we, we also have to, you know, pay very close attention because, you know, we're the ones who are on the side of innovation there. And <clears throat> there's a lot of, uh, how shall I say, um, detail that isn't really made public. And so when you consider things from the outside, of course, you might, you know, we, we do have customers that would say, yeah, it should be possible to do X, Y, and Z, but of course, they're not really going to know. Um, and so from that vantage point, yeah, there is also a lot of internal uh, contemplation as well as to, you know, what we can do to innovate because, yeah, we work very close to the intellectual property, right? So I think it's, it's, a, it's a good balance of both. What do you think differentiates Princeton Instruments from other companies? You know, really where the, the differentiation is for, you know, Princeton Instruments and, and photometrics. I mean, we really, you know, we really strive for excellence. It's, we certainly aim to take, you know, the, the leadership position in the market as, you know, the number one or, you know, number two player in the world. And so I think that <clears throat> that's really where the differentiation um, is rooted in the sense that you know, we're not trying to be, you know, a me too player in the field. We, we, we literally try to be the best. That's, that's really where, you know, we, I spend a lot of my time is making sure that, you know, what we do, the innovations that we, uh, that we build into the products and the time that we spend on the engineering side really helps to, you know, maintain that number one, number two position in the world. Changing track a little bit, how has working from home affected you? Have you had to change a lot of how you 
generally do things in your general workflow by not being able to access the office as much? Or have you been generally unaffected by the uh, pandemic? Well, my commute got a lot shorter. Um, <laughs> generally, generally speaking, no, my, my, you know, things didn't really change that, that significantly for me. A lot of my team is remote already, so there wasn't that much of a change. Um, of course, not having access to the lab when you need it that was probably one of the one of the largest changes. But you know, even throughout the pandemic, you know, let's say save the uh, you know more the extreme lockdown time period, we were still you know on occasion fine to come into the lab. Um, but that said, you know. Uh, you know, at the height of the pandemic, a lot of the work that we were doing was was heavy into the design phase. And those who were having to be, you know, coming into the office, you know, to, to put hardware together for prototyping, you know, those, those provisions were made and the precautions taken. So outside of that, you know, we really didn't see that much of, a, of an issue. And I, I, I think I could safely say that you know, in terms of engineering design efficiency, we were on balance more efficient working remotely while in heavy design phase. Do you think any of that's going to remain changed, or is it going to? Are you going to aim to go back to how they were before? Kind of the million dollar question that I think everyone is asking. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's going to clearly be a, a a push to go back to the office full time, but I think it's been a very interesting experiment in terms of, you know, the value that, you know, the the office brings. And, you know, I, I think what will end up happening is, you know, when we find ourselves, um, you know, working to accelerate on a schedule and we are in a design phase, not in a prototyping phase, it'll make sense and we'll make the provisions for, you know, remote work to facilitate advancing on a on a development timeline, but it'll be more on a case-by-case -case basis and where it really makes sense. I mean, there's certainly a lot of the, you know, the hallway conversations, of course, that just don't take place when you're you're all remote and you you miss out on a lot of innovation, if you will. I mean, there's a lot of um, thoughts that that transpire kind of in an un provoked sense outside of meetings that you you don't get in this you know more theatrical zoom or teams like environment where where it really does feel more like a theater setting and so you know you kind of miss out on that and you know i think you know we certainly can't can't lose sight of that but where it makes sense to you know to you know to allow a remote period of time uh, work to take place to advance on a schedule that I think it makes sense and we'll, we'll probably still see some of that in the future. How about outside of your work? What kind of things do you do in your free time? Sorry, free time? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have two young kids at, at the moment, two and four years old, so uh, free time is, is kind of when I can get it at maybe six o'clock in the morning and then again at maybe nine o'clock at night. So, um, yeah, um, you know, road biking is certainly something that I, I try to do as often as I can, I can. Um, and 
Yeah, I've also been, a, I've always been a fan of photorealistic uh, ray tracing, if, if anyone knows what that is. So I kind of kind of started down this road when I was 12 years old with a, with a program that, that now has become, you know, completely obsolete, and that's called Pavre. Anyone listening to this who, who hears Pavre, may, it may take them back a, <laughs> uh, a while. But yeah, I think I started using Pavre in 1990. It was 1990. Yeah, it's always been kind of a you know a, a fun thing that I like to to do when I can find the free time. Is you know it, it's it's very closely related to the optical ray tracing engines that we use out of ZMAX. Um, but in, in in the case of ZMAX, you know it's <clears throat> uh, you know clearly an, an analytical engine that's designed for um, designing scientific instrumentation and, and you know lens assemblies and the like. And in the case of photorealistic ray tracing, you know, nowadays this is a program called Blender. Um, when I grew up, it was Pavre, uh, but nonetheless, it's kind of all the same thing, and you know, quite quite fun to. It's a quite it's a really fun waste of time, I'll say. But but related to light and optics, nonetheless. So I guess I've I've been interested in photonics since I was a little kid and just didn't know it. I find that really interesting because modern, like the latest generation of sort of graphics cards for this kind of thing have come with what they call like new ray tracing technology for realistic lighting. I didn't realize it had been around for as long as you say. Yeah, when I started with Pavre, of course, the GPU um, was, was not really a thing. And what was, was what we called a map coprocessor. <laughs> so it was a, it was a coprocessor that was, you know, as the name indicates, doing some of the heavy number, number crunching that your CPU would you know, otherwise get bogged down because, you know, in that day it was a, clearly a single core, a single thread, and, you know, you would, you would effectively, um, you know, starve the OS of any resource to do anything if you wanted to do ray tracing. And so, yeah, they had Mathco processors back then, and I, I don't recall the details on it, but, yeah, the equivalent... Uh, image that would have taken me, you know, even maybe a few hours back then, you know, happens in like a fraction of a second now on a GPU. So it's, you know, it's just, you know, quite amazing to see where we've, where we've come with that. And how about the, uh, the road biking? Have you found that the, the roads have become a lot more crowded during the pandemic as everyone takes up an uh, exercise hobby to keep fit? Actually, during the pandemic, it was, well, during the, uh, the height of the lockdowns, it was great. I mean, there was absolutely no one on the road, um, except okay. for maybe I saw a few other road bikers out, but it was, you know, nice. I mean, you could, obviously, you're always cautious of the, of, you know, drivers uh, who aren't paying attention to, to cyclists. But, yeah, it was, it, was, it was brilliant. I mean, there was absolutely no one on the roads. Um, but now it's obviously, as far as I can tell, where I'm living, it's business as usual. What's the landscape like where you are? Are you in the very deserty part, or is it more mountainous with forests? I actually report out of the Acton, Massachusetts site, and I live about 50 miles outside of Boston toward the inland portion of Massachusetts. So it's oh. rolling hills, heavily forested, Okay, you must have some beautiful cycle routes around there. We do, we do. Um, there are a lot of cyclists. My uh, my home office faces uh, the road that I live off of, and one observation I can make is, 
you know, when the pandemic was in full swing, every day I'd see about a hundred thousand dollars in specialized and Trek bikes going past my house. <laughs> so, and and I actually tried to buy a, a a new road bike during the pandemic, and and came to find that you know, basically every nice bike, save like maybe one, had already been purchased. So certainly to your point, um, there were a lot of people uh, <laughs> getting into road biking during the time of the pandemic, taking advantage of the, the open road. It's, it's hard to actually find a flat where I'm at. I mean, it's not mountainous, so to speak, really, but it's, the, it's just rolling hills, which are nice, but <clears throat> it, it, it eats into the distance that you can, you can travel. But it's, it's still, it makes for a, makes for a, good, a good view. My university during my PhD, and it was right at the top of a hill. And my dad also does a lot of cycling. And he said to me, and it's the thing I always remember when I'm cycling up this hill, cycling never gets easier, but you do get faster. <laughs> Very true. So that, yeah. that was the, the only solace is that the hill didn't last quite as long after doing it for a few weeks. Are there any topics that you'd like to speak about while you have this platform that we haven't addressed? The one thing, I mean, with the FLIR acquisition, that certainly should bring about some interesting synergies between all of the business units within Teledyne and FLIR. So definitely looking forward to that. I think they, they complement the, uh, the digital imaging portfolio very well. I mean, now Teledyne really, you know, kind of, you know, covers the the full gamut from, you know, X-ray to IR. So that's, that's quite fascinating. Again, tying back to my own heritage, you know, I, I find that, I find that really interesting that now we've got, you know, a proper IR company in the fold. So really, really looking forward to talking with some folks at FLIR and seeing, you know, what we can do to, to innovate. So we're getting to the point where we can essentially address any challenges at any point on the spectrum. Definitely. I mean, in terms of imaging and uh, scientific work we kind of now have under our umbrella the, the complete x-ray to ir product chain so it's it's definitely interesting to, to take a step back and ask what how can we innovate so all that remains is to thank you so much for your time and to wish you to have a nice rest of your day yeah thanks man thanks again to my guest if you like this podcast please follow photometrics on social media for more episodes and check out photometrics.com for the latest in scientific camera technology for life sciences, such as the Kinetics SCMOS camera. We also host episodes that focus more on physical science applications, such as near-infrared, X-ray imaging, and spectroscopy, partnering with Teledyne Princeton Instruments. Follow them on social media to see when the next episode is released. See you next time, and stay safe.